0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
1: Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times. In partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't miss a single episode of the podcast. You can subscribe now via iTunes on your Android device and get Red Box in your inbox every morning with my daily political briefing sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red This week I'm joined by Red Box commentator Rachel Shabby who'll set out what Labour will be doing while the Tories are on their summer holiday. Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent for The Times on the little local difficulty in the Conservative Party. But first, Faye Schlesinger, the Times head of news, who wonders how to reverse the collapse of trust in the state.
0: The plight of Charlie Gard has earned deserved empathy for his parents, but an enemies of the people mentality, plus interventions from the likes of Donald Trump and the Pope, risk being allowed to dominate the narrative. There are concerns that scientists have left a void and need to feel empowered to speak out.
1: Okay, it goes without saying that the situation that Charlie Guard's parents in is unimaginable for anybody who's a parent. But the sort of attitude to, ultimately, the, you know, the judges are equally in an incredibly difficult position when ruling on this sort of thing. It, it seems like there has been a shift in the way that the sort of public attitude towards doctors and judges. The, we, we now don't appear to trust their judgment any more than somebody who's written a blog
0: quite possibly i mean i think i think in terms of charlie gard's parents they're doing exactly the right thing i mean they've got a, an extraordinary harrowing um, experience and case and, and it's right that you can fight through every court of the land right up to the top in, in Europe to, to make your case there's no problem with that whatsoever it's it's the views of the commentators and especially I think it's something I'd like to hone in on the, the scientific communities from the medical side um, I think we heard a lot from ethicists but less so from, from the medical experts on this and what, what's been allowed to happen is that you've had a, a petition for example of 350,000 signatures that was delivered to Great Ormond Street Hospital, a lot of commentators um, including in our own paper, it's, it's common, it's their, their right to, to take that view, really sort of coming down on the side of, well, the, who can really judge apart from parents? And I would take issue with that um, in a great uh, deal in and in a, in a very strong way. The idea of keeping a, a child alive, or anybody alive who is potentially in pain, and, and w- with the case of Charlie Gard, it is only potential, um, is not a passive act. It's not a. It's not a neutral act. It's not. It's not the idea of oh, just keep the child alive. Let's exhaust all the the other opportunities, and you know, no harm to that child. It could mean harm, and that's why we do have to take it very seriously. And I think we should be listening to, to judges and to doctors very importantly, who are informing the judges' decisions in terms of this. I think it, it is fair to to bring. Um, uh, comparisons with things like Grenfell where there's been a lot of doubt and concern over the authorities and what they're telling us about things like the death toll in the absence of any evidence really that the death toll is a lot higher than the 80 that have been um, established which is extraordinary high in itself um, there's still a lot of um, uh, misinformation out there, suggestions from the likes of celebrities and things like that which have been set against um, people in much greater authority and much greater position to know um, and this sort of uh, Attitude, which is that we can't trust those who have been given the power to to make decisions on these things. I think it's partly the internet and the way that people can do their own research. So we see that a lot with medical cases because you know you can, if you've got, um, you've been diagnosed with a condition now, you've got at your fingertips a world of potential data. Some of which will be true, some of which will be disputed, and some which will be downright lies or fabrications. And it's bringing those things together um, as if they're being balanced against each other in, a, in an equal way, and they're not equal. We do need to acknowledge that that there are those with greater powers in their hands to make these decisions. They are the experts. I'm loath to raise Gove's experts comment again, because it gets dragged up every single time. But there is something to that, the idea of we, we do have to accept that there is a hierarchy of opinion um, and that is not journalist's opinion being higher than others or or necessarily a judge. Judges are fallible. But when you've got the whole weight of opinion, um, uh, for example, in the, case of, in the case of Charlie Gard, we should be listening to it. And I think, going back to my point about scientists, there, there's been a lot of nervousness around scientists speaking out, partly because it's such an emotional and evocative subject, partly because they're really worried about the sort of um, mob mentality I suppose of being targeted and we've seen a lot with Tory MPs and things like that and Labour MPs sorry by on Twitter and things like that reputational risk to um, universities I sit on the advisory committee for the Science Media Centre and they've written a blog recently about how scientists were really really nervous about speaking out on Charlie Gard but I think they have a responsibility to and should
1: Rachel what do you make of this is is this an extension of the Michael Gove? we've all had enough of experts and part of the reason why that comment is so remembered because it obviously did strike a chord with some people.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it really, I think it was a really damaging, stupid thing to say, and I think we're going to feel the repercussions of that. It almost sort of opened the floodgates. And I, I, I do think there's a big difference between um, not trusting authorities. So, in the case, I, I do think it's very distinct in the case of somewhere like Grenfell, where there is a mistrust of authorities because they've been. Seen to abuse their power. That's a very separate thing from saying you've had enough of experts and expertise. And I think, you know, we, it would be really good to, to restore some kind of faith in, in the credibility and wisdom of experts. Um, I've, I found it very disturbing, Gove's suggestion, um, that their contribution to our society was in any way unwelcome
1: and lucy the interesting thing when he said that in the eu referendum campaign was that actually what it did and we could we sort of saw it happening because the remain campaign had the experts on their side the economists the bankers the you know across the board they had the experts on their side and in the end they just didn't carry the same weight as perhaps they used to is it just a sort of end of deference or what's what do you think's behind it
3: with the internet with social media with blogs and sort of new kind of news sites online some of which um, have slightly uh, less credibility and um, sort of commitment to veracity than others um, does create um, a problem it creates a lot of white noise um, and I think some of this um, there's two distinct things one is uh, people having sort of bonafide opinions even if they're wrong you know saying things that they believe to be the case in good faith and the other thing that i'm absolutely fascinated by is um is the more political project to um promote to fund um disinformation propaganda there's a lot of interest right now in russian psyops and um and and the aim of this is is, is not like traditional lobbying we perhaps saw 10 20 30 years ago um you, you fund a kind of particular movement to, to, to achieve a particular aim, the general aim of it all is to precisely break down trust in, in public institutions, in experts, in authority, to kind of create a sort of sense of instability. It's a very kind of anarchic force, um, and, and I feel quite a sort of a, a sense of anxiety about um, about that growing. It's, it's sort of it's happening in America. There's a lot of funding on both ends of the political spectrum, um, and. and very wealthy individuals just funding lots of different conflicting groups in order to create this this white noise uh, and I wonder if we'll see an uptick of that in the UK
1: Faye does it change the way that a uh, newspaper like the Times has to operate whereas in the past uh, if a claim surfaced and a report from the Times looked into it and it wasn't true we might have just ignored it is there now a sort of responsibility on us to report it as being false and actually one of the interesting things I've seen Recently, the Buzzfeed is done off the back of the, I think the London attacks and the Manchester attack and Grenfell, is taking the stuff these just insane people who pretend that they've lost relatives mm. and uh, in tragedies on social media and that sort of thing, and instead of where, whereas maybe the Times would look into it and actually think, well, that's just not true, so we won't report it. They've done some really interesting things, I think, where they sort of go through these claims aren't true. That's not a genuine fundraising page, and that's is, it, is that a sort of increasingly a role that what we would call the established media has to do? Do you think?
0: I think it is. A, it's an editorial decision as to how much oxygen to give people, yeah. because you do risk fanning fanning the flames by. Um, I'm sure a lot of these people who who troll or who who create. F- Absolutely fake news. Like we see, we we did see pictures after Grenfell of a toddler that had supposedly died. That was that's just a picture of a toddler from America that had nothing to do with Grenfell, and the same with the terror attacks. Um, these people, I I presume in most cases, are attention seekers who thrive off that oxygen. So we have a responsibility not purely to give them the oxygen, but equally we'd be misinforming our readers if we didn't tell them um, about the scale of some um, fake news, especially when it when it. is getting um, shared in a big way on Twitter. I mean I guess if there's something that's been shared once or twice as a tweet we might decide to disregard that whereas when it becomes part of the narrative um, that's a different question and sometimes it it tells you something about a failure by the authority so for example you could argue um, as Rachel has with with Grenfell, well because it looks like failings by the authority potentially contributed to or led to the Grenfell fire, people are within their rights to say well how how can we trust the organisation that has maybe failed Able to put our tower up in the correct way. Um, so when it feeds in that way, it tells you something else and it's our job to kind of get behind it and understand um, the impact. Um, the same with the fact that the the judge in the case of Grenfell has had to um, I think rightly probably extend the consultation period so that so that the people who've been affected feel they can trust that judge and that's the right thing to do. There has to be that flexibility. Um, it is tricky um, deciding how to report these things. I probably think we do give more attention now than we used to to the fake element of news. But I also think, I mean, I would say this as a, as a news editor, but that it makes our role more important because we do become, I think, a more trustworthy source, and that should be our aim.
1: Is there anything that can be done, do you think, to, to restore that trust, or is it a question of operating in different rules? What do you think, Rachel? Rachel?
2: I mean, it's been interesting sort of listening into um, the way this has played out in the States as well, just in terms of, um, you know, Donald Trump and the fact that his supporters um, really don't believe um, what a lot of what they see as a sort of liberal biased media are saying about him, uh, you know, since he has come to be president. And I think it seems listening into that conversation that a lot of it is about... Yes, there's a lot of fake news, as you say, and that really has become a problem, and it's very worrying. But at the same time, the lack of trust in main in sort of mainstream media, if we have to use that term, is to do with it being unrepresentative and detached and removed, and it's in its own little information silo. Uh, and the fact that you know media has missed so many of the big stories of the last few years—Trump, Brexit, the Labour Party surge—speaks to its detachment from society at large um, and its detachment from what's going on in an, in, a, in an everyday way and I think you know to restore trust in media um, the media might need to make itself a lot more representative and therefore accountable in its own way.
1: Well as you've um, mentioned uh, the Labour Party and our um, inability to spot what was happening with the Labour Party uh, let's, t- let's move on and we'll talk about what Labour have got planned this summer?
2: Yes, well, for the Conservative Party, the summer break doubtless can't come soon enough. Their MPs urge to have a lie down or take a holiday. But unfortunately for them, Labour has a plan to bolster support this summer, with Jeremy Corbyn on a nationwide tour and the party in permanent campaign mode.
1: So this is interesting, you've written this for Red Box this week. The Labour Party is definitely on election footing, even if the Conservative Party isn't. Mm. Um, What what more do you think the Labour Party needs to do? Because obviously, uh, Jeremy Corbyn had great success when judged against what lots of people thought he was going to do. But he did ultimately win about the same number of seats as Gordon Brown in 2010. So what does he need to do to sort of seal the deal or, you know, the one big heave to get to a point where he actually becomes Prime Minister?
2: Well, I think there's a few there's a few different things going on here. Um, one of them is that you know the Labour Party obviously wants to um, make use of and extend the sort of momentum that it 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 um, galvanised during the election campaign, uh, whereby it did seem that people really did engage um, with the Labour Party, unexpectedly with the leadership and also um, with the policies. The manifesto, it turned out, was the main reason why people voted um, for the Labour Party. So they do, with the Conservative Party in such a state of disarray, they do want to be seen as a government in waiting, a government that is capable of governing in a way that the La- that the Conservative Party clearly isn't. So that's kind of what this is about over the next few months of just travelling the country and saying, look... Um, we are ready, we are waiting, we can do it tomorrow, we can do it next week, um, we, we can do it whenever. And these are the policies on which we are still campaigning in this sort of permanent election campaign mode. And I think that what they've tapped on is that people people really are ready for what the Labour Party is suggesting. People really are wait, re- waiting Um and wanting these kind of uh, political changes in society, um, sort of post austerity, post recession, there really are such huge problems in the country that are now affecting most people. It's not just, you know, the the poor or the working class. It's most people. Um, It's all but a tiny percentage who really are struggling under the sort of daily realities of um, shrinking GDP and wage stagnation and rising um, costs and a housing crisis and all kinds of things, a welfare state crisis, all kinds of things that are making life very difficult for many people. So there is a hunger and a desire um, for a different kind of society and I think that's what the Labour Party has tapped into with its vision it's not just the politics it's the it's the story that it's telling of a different country and I think the more people hear that now um, the more likely it is that it will win uh, the next election whenever that may be. Richard, Lucy. do you think that people um there's a sense which people are a little bit tired post the election because um
3: a real uh, uh bookmark for me was um this um toys out people's assembly against uh, austerity march that happened i think it was on beginning of uh this month where you know john mcdonald had gone to the unions and roused them to try and mobilize a million people to get out on the streets and um, happened to be cycling around central london that saturday didn't look that sort of, um, sort <laughs> to of uh, buzzy to me I think they think uh, sort of, you know, there were thousands um, I think sort of around 15,000 was one um, estimate but it, it wasn't that sort of huge movement, people taking to the streets that sort of revolutionary fervour and I just wonder if it's if the sort of momentum um, small m is, um, is waning <laughs> slightly after four years of major electoral events and suddenly this particular quite intense election period
2: yeah, I think you're right. I mean, people are really tired of elections, right? Generally I mean, it's just, yeah, <laughs> enough of But I think people are also tired of politics as they are. And people are definitely tired of the Conservative Party. And it's one thing giving us terrible, <laughs> economically damaging policies if you're doing it with some kind of veneer of competence (laughs) but now even that's gone you know it's a it's a government that actually looks incapable of governing more so with every day so I think where, where where you might be right that you know there is a fatigue with politics there is also a real impetus for change and I think that will probably override any kind of sense of weariness just that Need for something to change?
0: Mm. One, one thing they're going to have to contend with the Labour Party as they go out on the stump, and, and I think there probably is appetite for, for. I mean, the sort of campaigning that Corbyn and his team do is very powerful. We've seen that. I mean, Glastonbury was very, very powerful. Um, uh, what they're going to contend with is Brexit because they still haven't sorted out their approach and policy on Brexit. And I can't see how they can keep going out on the stump without having that question come at them again and again. And it still feels like they really don't know where they are because they've got such... I mean, not saying the Tories do, by the way. <laughs> 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 Certainly not. But, but, you know, if Labour are going to promise to take this country forward, yes, they're able to, to, to govern and, pa- and, and and get into power, they, you know, they would have to go straight into into Brexit negotiations. Um, there's no let-up on that or the, the mm. clock is ticking. And we've still got this enormous discrepancy on whether, you know... The, those who really deep down think we shouldn't be Brexiting at all but are just saying we should be. And those who deep down think, good, we should absolutely be Brexiting um, and actually let, let's stick with the quite hard path. And they're sort of avoiding that question all the time. And I think at some point you feel like the Labour Party has to say, OK, here's where we are on Brexit.
1: But I, isn't, isn't the genius of the Labour position that
0: they're not doing up that.
1: until now, and certainly during the election campaign, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonough have managed to keep that coalition together. They managed to have a manifesto on Brexit couple of pages on Brexit, which did manage to keep Doncaster and Islington North together because and people could read their own things into it. I mean, actually, what we then saw was that Chukramuna and 49 other Labour MPs who had gone harder on the sort of soft gone hard on a soft Brexit if you know what I mean and, and talked about still being in the single market you know they came out and quite early on uh, rebelled on it so I think that's a taste of the sort of thing that we'll see in the future what do you think Lucy?
3: Well I, I, I worry because I, I think that obviously Brexit is you know a colossal challenge facing the country um, and I think that people uh, you know who, who are dealing with it, kind of looking into the, the real weeds, whether it's sort of journalists, um, you know, people on Whitehall, um, I'm not convinced that the general public are as interested in the ins and outs of Brexit, uh, and I say that because in, in a way I, I feel... Is it because um, you're not, Lucy? Well, no, I... I <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, very dare you.
3: Um, I say it's a, it's a sense of um, remorse, but out, out on the campaign trail following Theresa May around during the election campaign, you know, ordinary people weren't asking her about Brexit, they were yeah. asking her about education, about the NHS, and I... And I, I sort of think it's um, it's possibly a bad thing that Labour can get away with slightly fudging it because people aren't asking the journalists are and on on TV shows asking kind of difficult questions about single market, customs union, the rest of it. But um, I'm just not sure that politicians on the doorstep are really feeling the heat. Um,
2: Yeah, it's interesting how um, that was my experience of it as well. well, um, You know, during the election campaign, how little. Brexit actually came up on the doorstep. And I think that um, for Labour, and, and, and you're right, they haven't really fleshed it out any more than the Conservatives. I mean, they've, they've all sped, said spectacularly little about it, given the significance of what's about to happen. But it seems as though um, for the Labour Party, you know, most most people, even those who voted to remain, have accepted that Brexit needs to happen because to not have it happening would be anti-democratic and worse in many ways until such time if and when there is a significant enough shift in public mood and of course if there is that shift I don't think any politician should be insensitive to that but so given that people have accepted that you know however reluctantly that may be that Brexit is happening I think that gave the Labour Party an opportunity to tell a wider
1: story, move on and talk about other to things, move on yeah, and
2: yeah. talk about the economy, to talk about the welfare state, to talk about education, to talk about housing, but also, you know, a lot of the things that Brexit seemed to be a vote against, a lot of the reasons that people voted to leave, were actually um, those voters found a lot that they liked about the Labour Party's electoral campaign. So they liked the idea of renationalising um, energy and um, uh, railway companies—they liked the idea of um, corporation tax. You know, taking it all the way back to you know slightly less than 2010 levels. Um, they liked the idea of taxing the five percent for the benefit of the 95 percent. So actually, you know, there there was you know that the, the narrative that the Labour Party has just seems to be very much in line with where the popular mood is at in terms of what now needs to change. You know, people are wanting a very systemic change in the way society and the economy is organised
3: I think there's a lot in what you say but I uh, absolutely fascinated over the weekend by John McDonnell seeming to downgrade um, the promise of uh, scrapping uh, or tackling tuition fees to an ambition and I just, that for me felt like such a centrepiece of the labour offering, not only do I know many young people who, who, who voted for labour, I know many mi- mi- middle aged people, parents who voted for that, you know, w- mm. wanting their kids to be sort of free from student debt or, or now in the future uh, and I just feel that by downgrading that it, the, the whole sort of firmament on which Labour's kind of policy platform um, stands feels a lot less steady to me uh, and I wonder what, what, what you made of um, of John Macdonald's comments.
2: I mean I don't think he's not saying anything because Angela Rayner the week before kind of was suggesting you know that there, there are ambitions to completely scrap um,
1: tuition fees but it was but a
3: manifesto pledge it wasn't it wasn't really? a it wasn't a we'll, we'll look at this or we'll and have a review was a, was, so or a was, this is a Jeremy yeah.
1: Corbyn interview with the NME just mm. before the election where he said not just scrapping tuition fees mm. for people starting in September but the idea of writing off the debt for
2: yeah people. current debt yeah, current debt for people who've already been and
1: he mm. said I will deal with that but now this has become an ambition and a
2: yeah, I mean, it's become it's turned into an ambition, an ambition for a, for a few yeah. weeks, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I don't. It wasn't it wasn't part of the costed but manifesto, Do you think, do you think, and that I think they need to, to slightly
1: erode the sort of Corbyn, because um, his unique selling point is he's sort of he's not a. Shifty, talk, you know, a shifty Tory politician who says one thing and does the other. Mm. If, if he starts sort of slightly nibbling away at the manifesto that people did, mm. you know, clearly really like on. There June is a 8. risk
0: of reverting to type, isn't there? And, and we come back to, trusting and and to trust and dodges and things because it was, a, it, was a, yeah, yeah. it was a big old. Um, announcement on tuition fees, even the part of it that sounds like they're going to stick with, you know, very, very uh, headline-grabbing, eye-catching, you know, the kind of thing that would have pulled people over suddenly um, to voting Labour when they'd been sort of teetering on an edge. And with, I, I think you can bring into this the trolling as well, which is something that it's all very well criticising the Tories for not um, the N-word in the woodpile uh, and the, the delay in the Tories dealing with that MP. But at the same time, you've, I mean, Ken Livingston hasn't been dealt with. So I do, you know, the Labour Party have got to keep answering these questions and, and really living the, um, the uh, values, that I suppose, they put forward, because that will come under more and more scrutiny.
1: Well, as you've uh, raised the Conservatives, let's move on. We can't get through a whole week without talking about the the state the Conservative Party's in. So, uh, this is Lucy Fisher.
3: Vicious attacks, ambushes and counter-salvos abound. The cabinet of the British government more commonly resembles a circular firing squad at present. The past week has seen anonymous leaks, blows against the Chancellor and allies of Boris Johnson and David Davis threatening to kick each other in the groin at a Westminster party. Frontbenchers blame the heady heat, too much warm Prosecco and the need for a holiday. But although we're crawling towards parliamentary recess at the end of this week, a summer of discontent may beckon.
1: What is going on in the (laughs) Conservative Party? Because uh, there there were two Conservative parties that I'm aware of. There's the one that I speak to every day in Parliament. You speak to Conservative MPs and Ministers who say, Theresa May's got to stay, she's got to sort out the mess of Brexit, It's madness, the idea of David Davis or Boris Johnson or Philip Hammond being Prime Minister. Uh, And everyone needs to calm down. And then you open a Sunday newspaper and it is full of stuff about why David Davis and Boris Johnson um, would make about prime minister. So, what, what's your sort of reading of it, Lucy?
3: Well, I think you know pe- people are saying, well, you know, it's summer, we're, everyone's tired. You know, it's all, it's all, you know, it's it's, it's the heat and, and everything else, and it's bored journalists hanging around the corridors of Westminster stirring up trouble. Well, I'm sorry, that's always the case. Um, <laughs>
1: we we're always is, hanging around we <laughs> looking for stories. Yeah.
3: This is purely a, a product of um, of weak leadership. Um, Theresa May can't keep control of her cabinet. and I think, as you um, rather pithily summarised in a red box uh, email uh, on Monday. Um, The axes against which these sort of uh, differences of opinion um, fall are threefold. There's Brexit, Remainers versus Brexiteers in the cabinet. There's the different sides of uh, fence on austerity, and of course there's leadership. I mean that you know everyone knows that Theresa May. can't last indefinitely. It's highly unlikely uh, she w- will uh, last more than two years, Not she won't fight another election. So everything has to be viewed as, as the manoeuvring and, and the big beasts who's interested is to have a contest sooner rather than later and those who, who want to kind of string it out hoping that the next generation uh, the sort of the golden age of the 2010ers will have been brought up enough through the ministerial ranks to have a go themselves. So there's a lot of swirling kind of currents going on here.
0: To me it feels like there's no obvious way to push May out and neither would, would there be a lot of desire to do that immediately because there is a risk that, that Corbyn can get in. I thought it was interesting that Blair said um, yes, over the weekend um yeah, I can see that he could be prime minister. And, and the I, Tories I love are the petrified way, about that. I love absolutely the way petrified. it's described
2: as a risk <laughs> 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 as opposed to an opportunity. For Blair, it is a risk. For Blair, it is a risk. He's somebody risk. Risk. who absolutely said you
0: cannot get in on a, on a real left-wing manifesto. Right. And now he's saying, actually, I have to possibly beat my words. Um, so I can't see a way that the Tories would readily go for another election and they'd be really worried about the idea of putting a new candidate in without an election because then he's got the mandate events might well be what happens all you need is one big thing that you know derails may she's already extremely weakened i mean getting through grenfell was really really tricky um you all you need is one or two more things like that and suddenly you're all in you need to that's why they're jockeying for position i think this idea that may cannot get in uh, in two years time or cannot Go for another um, uh, election. I actually don't really buy that because I think if she's in mm. in a year or in 18 months, if we've learned anything from the past few years, it's that you cannot predict. And um, <laughs> she, it may, you know, if she manages to stick out the next few months, then who knows? Maybe she becomes stronger again. Maybe she handles some, the Brexit negotiations with a plum. And, you know, she, she, um, turns on the head all our expectations and we have to expect that now because we failed repeatedly and the experts have failed to predict these things but i think what you could get is something that's that but that's ago. why i think it's, it's dangerous to say write her off for the next election if the next election is say in 2019 however if we get to a point in the next few months the next say I don't know, even before christmas or the next six months where something is very very risky for her or she makes a mistake or there's a leak that is really damaging that's the point when surely you can imagine the, the David Davises mm-hmm. and the Borises and potentially the Goves rushing in.
3: I think what he says is really interesting. I think that this summer is going to be absolutely mm. key for her. Not least, they need to kind of consolidate their personnel. So many people have either left or been, uh, or been fired um, since the since the general election. That it, it, it's a key time, and I think there is a there is a strong possibility that if she does get all her ducks in a row. Authority will, will accrue back to number 10. It's not, it's not really sustainable, I think, past the summer to have this level of, of leaking and counter briefing uh, and, and outright sort of transparent aggression c- continuing.
2: It is. It's quite, it's quite strange because the Conservative Party, you know, we've, all, we've always sort of known them for having this kind of ruthless efficiency and discipline, and they seem so completely undisciplined right now. It's almost like, you know, they just cannot resist picking at this scab, right? They just, you know, they must know that they're better off trying to at least pretend to be united, but they just seem completely incapable of doing it. And I think the optics are just very... Um, very bad for the Conservative Party because here they are sort of eating each other, sort of eating themselves into some kind of... You know, they're imploding, basically. And meanwhile, we have a very strong Labour Party going round this summer tour of traditional, you know, Tory heartland constituencies, getting these huge crowds, um, going up in the polls, having the policies go up in the polls, meeting EU chiefs and getting on very nicely with them and having the EU saying, hey, we think Corbyn should be a part in the negotiations. And it, it just looks really, really bad. But I think the other thing about this is that this is a Conservative Party desperately holding on to power, of course, that's what political parties do. But if you're doing it to the extent that you are causing the nation damage, which they clearly are, they cannot govern, they cannot take us through Brexit, they cannot get anything passed through Parliament because they're so weak. So if it comes to the point where you're actually causing damage to the country, then surely you need to think about what it is that you're doing in government.
3: Well, the problem is that the electoral mass isn't there for Labour either. I mean, it's no. sort of that, well, no. <laughs> that's, that's what we are. That's, that's what we are. So, so I'm not quite sure that that um, the point of making having of weakened the ability to get things through Parliament, Labour wouldn't be able to, to to do that either on the on the on the current maths. But which is um, why we need
2: another election, surely. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, politics. Sorry. Sorry. The, it's just the, the, full other, the
1: other the other <laughs> thing about the maths is that one of the Problems with the idea of David Davis or Boris Johnson suddenly becoming Prime Minister. They don't suddenly get a majority of a hard Brexit.
0: Who'd want
3: to they're, be Prime Minister? They're now. left with exactly yeah.
1: the same, you know, leaving Theresa May to sort of referee this seems like a much more um, sensible way of going about it. And, uh, you and, know, and Matt, that
3: plays into your point that, it, 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 you know, when you walk around Westminster, virtually every uh, MP, Conservative MP I speak to, uh, as we've were talking earlier, you know does not want an election does not want to destabilize Theresa May and feels quite angry at the leaking that's going on because it's uh, at the hands of a few people kind of stirring up trouble it's making the whole party look really disunited and, and making the uh, prospect of an election more more likely.
1: And, you know, as uh, Faye was saying, we haven't got these things right before. And it was only 12 months ago that it was the Labour front bench that was in revolt. People were residing all over the place, calling for the leader to go while the government was miles ahead of the polls. So who knows where we'll be uh, this time next year. We, uh, I think that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Remember, to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Or on your Android device and get red box in your inbox every morning. Sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from Faye, Rachel, Lucy, and me, it's goodbye.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
3: Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare.
1: Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus...